0: Section 5 of The Ring and the Book, An Interpretation, by Francis Bickford Hornbrook. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5. Tertium Quid We have heard voices telling the story of The Ring and the Book, as they happen to be advocates of the wife or of the husband. In Tertium Quid we hear the voice, not of an advocate, but of one who poses as judge and who sums up the possible arguments which may be urged on both sides. He is fully aware that his presentation of the affair is far superior to the popular view. There has been, he thinks, enough loose and passionate talk, and now the time has come to allow qualified persons to pronounce. Some people think law will clear it all up, but law has already failed. He recounts contemptuously the pleadings of the lawyers, expresses his gratification at being able to entertain people of quality and, at the same time, his contempt for the mob, and then proceeds to give a detailed account of the condition and conduct of Pietro and Violante up to the time of the marriage of Pompilia. In his description of the act of Violante in passing of Pompilia, the child of a public woman, for her own, he dwells on the good as well as the evil in it. We might, he says, infer from this incident in her life that she was capable of black, hard, cold crime, like a stone you kick up with your foot in the middle of a field. So he himself thought formerly, but he now considers the good that has come from her deed. The sin has saved a soul, The heirs to the property are not wronged, because they do not know they are wronged. Then he knows that Pietro was made a better man through the child. His habits are improved, he learns how to practice self-denial, and his debts are paid. Violante herself, being happy, was good. In the matter of the marriage, neither party was really deceived. Each got what he bargained for. Guido got the money and the bride got the title. Neither party, however, obtained all he hoped by the transaction. The aged couple found this out first. They saw that Guido was penniless, and at once screamed, We are cheated! It was not until Guido's cruelty forced them to leave his house that Violante confessed that Pompilia was not her own child, and that Pietro saw in the confession his opportunity of revenge and advantage. But Guido retorts that he is the wronged one. He did what he promised and conferred a real title upon his wife. That he was poor was a mere incident which might change at any time. But the old couple had promised to give him their child in marriage and instead they had given him a drab's brat. It is hard to determine which of the two parties was cheater or cheated. Guido's treatment of his wife is explained on the one hand, by his desire to drive her into a life of shame, and to compel her to accept the attentions of Caponsacchi; On the other hand, it may be urged that it is not necessary to resort to such unusual reasons for Pompilia's conduct. The perversity and weakness of woman's nature might account for that. Then, why should Guido frighten his wife with dread of Caponsacchi if he wanted her to flee with him? The case had been heard and tried in the Tuscan courts, and they had decided in favour of Guido. How then could his conduct be such as was imputed to him? Even if he wished her to take Caponsacchi as her lover and to flee with him, how could he bring the priest, over whom he had no power, to take his part in the transaction? Admit, too, that Rompilia was wronged. Does that justify Caponsacchi's conduct and make it right for him to go journeying with a woman that's a wife. Again, it is contended by the priest that he had had no previous acquaintance with the wife, and that he felt the truth by instinct. But Guido replies that Caponsacchi did visit his wife, and that letters were carried from one to the other by a wench in his own house, and that these letters were found in the inn where they were overtaken and arrested. To this, however, reply is made by both Pompilia and Caponsacchi, that not one word in the letters was written by either of them. Guido, they say, who would profit by them, forged them. On behalf of Guido, it is urged that he had no need to resort to the devices attributed to him. He had shown himself a man of force in the end. Why should he resort to weak intrigues in the beginning? Poison, or even violence, in his own house, would, with little or no risk, have attained the same result. But to this the priest may reply, You use violence at last, because, like a fox, you will turn when caught. Then, in the end, the birth of the child made Pompilia's murder profitable to Guido. In defence of himself, the priest replied, Knowing also what my duty was, I did it. Guido's conduct, when he had overtaken the fleeing pair at the inn, is capable of different interpretations. His enemies say that, having failed to act at the moment and submitted himself to the courts, he had lost all right to act afterward. But Guido's friends may urge that everybody applauded his appeal to the courts. These had really decided nothing, wavering between the two parties, and Guido, maddened by their delay, took on himself the office of judge in his own case. Even suppose he was a coward, has not a coward rights? Then, too, it may be urged, in behalf of Guido, that a wrong like his grows not less but more with the lapse of time. Pompilia's conduct in her dying hours may be capable of different interpretations, It is as explicable, on the supposition of guilt, as of innocence. Some may, and do say, that her words and prayers show that she was of wifehood, one white innocence. Others say that they only show she was consistent in her evil from the beginning to the end of her life, and that as she has braved heaven and deceived earth throughout, so now she does the same to clear her lover and convict her husband. Tertium Quid thinks there is great exaggeration on both sides. The wife's friends exclaim over the enormous crime committed for nothing. They will not allow that she merited any punishment. They must make her out an angel, and her parents' angels too, of an aged sort. Guido can hardly be the man his enemies suppose him to be. He is not a monster, but a mere man. His mother loves him... His brothers stand by him. The archbishop and governor of his native place know, approve, and aid him. He has cardinals who vouch for him, and one of them made the marriage for him. Can such a man commit the awfulest of crimes for nothing? It may be that Guido is innocent, and is really sacrificed to the popular clamour for justice. While Tertium Quid decides nothing, his version of the whole affair gives us the materials upon which a judgment can be based. He also provides information which, so far, we have not had, and which adds to our knowledge of some of the characters and their doings. He gives us, to begin with, the fullest account of the way in which Pietro and Violante lived, the easy self-satisfaction of Pietro in his good living and the pride of Violante in her fine clothes, He indicates how they came to be in debt, and were compelled to seek help from the largesse of the Pope. He tells us how Violante proposes to remedy the state of things by providing an heir, how she goes to the miserable home of the future mother of Pompilia, and so overawes the poor woman with the swirl of silk that she imagines the Madonna herself has made her a visit. The woman herself is vividly portrayed. We know her almost as well as if we had seen her washing clothes at the cistern by Cittorio. We overhear the proposition made to her to sell her future child. We have learned the fact before, but in the fuller statement it becomes more real. Tertium quid enables us to follow Violante as she marches in triumph over the success of her scheme to the church and joins in the singing of the Magnificat. My reproof is taken away, and blessed shall mankind proclaim me now, so that the priest on the altar turns to see who offers such obstreperous praise. He gives us a more complete account of Guido and his family. We learn all the miserable economies of Guido's home, how one of the sons entered the church, how the daughters are married, how Guido, in the hope of a fortune, came to Rome, and served a cardinal there for thirty years, and how, when he had been, at last, dropped from his service, he proposed to return to Arezzo, his ancestral home. He gives us the advice of Guido's brother Paolo, that he should marry, and so gain a little money to take home with him. He describes Guido's visit to the barber, who told him of Pompilia and Paolo's visit to Violante. Herciim Quid gives the details of Pompilia's visit to the hermit and the meditation of the hermit afterward. A certain friar of mean degree, who heard her story in confession, wept, crossed himself, showed the man within the monk. Then will you save me, you the one in the world? I cannot even write my woes nor put my prayer for help in words a friend may read. I no more own a coin. have an hour free of observance i was watched to church and watched now shall be watched back presently how by the skill of scribe in the marketplace pray you write down and send whatever i say of the need i have my parents take me hence the good man rubbed his eyes and could not choose let her dictate her letter in such a sense that parents to save breaking down a wall might lift her over she went back heaven in her heart then the good man took counsel of his couch woke and thought twice the second thought the best here i am foolish body that i be caught all but pushing teaching who but i my betters their plain duty what i dare help a case the archbishop would not help Mend matters, peradventure, God loves mar. What hath a married life but strifes and plagues for proper dispensation? So a fool once touched the ark, for Uzzah that I am. O married ones, much rather should I bid, Impatience, all of ye possess your souls. This life is brief, and troubles die with it. Where were the prick to soar up homeward else? So saying, he burned the letter he had writ, said Ave for her intention, in its place, took snuff and comfort, and had done with all. The fact of the murder we have known before, but quid gives some details which make it vivid. We hear Pietro, as he bellows, Mercy for heaven, not for earth, leave to confess and save my sinful soul, then do your pleasure on the body of me. And we hear Guido reply, Nay, father, soul with body must take his chance. We see Pompilia as she rushes here and there Like a dove among the lightnings in her break. And Guido, as he lifts her By the long dishevelled hair, Holds her away at arm's length with one hand, While the other tries if life come from the mouth, Looks out his whole heart's hate on the shut eyes. Draws a deep, satisfied breath. So, dead at last. Throws down the burden on dead Pietro's knees and ends all with, Let us away, my boys. When Guido was arrested, he asked who told them "'Twas he who did the deed. And, on hearing the reply, Why, naturally, your wife, he Drops of the horse he rode, they have to steady and stay at either side the brute that bore him, bound, so strange it seemed his wife should live and speak. Tertium quid tells us, for the first time, of the decision of the Tuscan courts against Pompilia, of which Guido made all he could. All this is knowledge which a person of the superior social section might be supposed to have. As we examine further the character of Tertium quid, We see that the person who speaks here has evidently taken great pains to acquire all possible information. He has no confidence in the ability of the law to get at the actual fact. He understands the mechanical and external methods it uses. He represents the superior class, and all that he says shows him to be one whose education fits him to take a more dispassionate view of the incidents, in the case of Guido, while, at the same time, It shows him to be a man whose sympathies do not extend beyond his particular set. He is very considerate of those among whom he moves. He desires to do whatever will add to their pleasure, and to avoid whatever will cause them annoyance or inconvenience. For those outside his aristocratic circle, however, he has no concern. They are of another sort, and have nothing in common with people of his kind. He does not enter into the feelings of the people in his story. He scornfully refers to the mob, whose opinion is worthless compared with his. The trouble with people, he says, is that they forget that they are only dealing with a commonty. This is merely an episode in Burgess life, and people talk as if they had to do with a noble pair. To him, there are different codes for different sets of people, and he blames Pietro and Violante because themselves love themselves, although such a course is far from worst even for their betters. He describes them as human slugs and pauper saints. He thinks it would be better for the Pope to crush such people instead of feeding them. He has no patience with a woman like Violante, and says of her, judged by the way she bore adversity or the patient nature you ask pity for. His account of the affair is impartial and balanced, but it lacks any real insight. Tertium Quid does not bring us a step nearer to the actual truth. He has information, but no sympathy with the parties about whom he is taking so much trouble to inform himself. Never, for a moment, does he catch a glimpse of the pure motive of Pompilia. It does not require, he thinks, all the malicious devices of Guido to cause her to flee with the priest. Any more than it requires that Etna should vomit flames to melt an icicle. Her conduct can be explained by more obvious reasons. We must not want all this elaborate work to solve the problem why a young fancy and flesh slips from the dull side of a spouse in years, betakes it to the breast of brisk and bold, whose love scrapes furnish talk for all the town. Nor has Tertium quid any conception of Guido's real character. He thinks he cannot be as bad as his enemies say he is. He has been born, bred and brought up in the usual way. His mother loves him, his brothers stand by him, the archbishop and governor of his native town favour him. He has been in the household of a cardinal who arranged his marriage. Such a one need not be a monster, but only a mere man. People, he thinks, are mistaken in regarding Pompilia as an angel and Guido as a demon. Perhaps the truth lies between. Pompilia may have been a little to blame, while Guido was inconsiderate in his treatment of her. It is significant that his version of the story has no interest for those to whom he talks. They wish to be somewhere else, and he closes with the muttered remark, You'll see... I have not so advanced myself after my teaching the two idiots here. After all, the world cares very little for versions of events, the balance between probabilities, without any vital concern for the persons engaged in them. It loves the plea of the advocate and the statement of one who puts his heart into what he says. It is not regardless of the truth, but with a correct instinct. It feels that a speaker is not nearer to the real facts because of his indifference. History is not correct because it is impartial and dull. It may be that Browning takes occasion in Tertium Quid to satirize the kind of history which depends more upon information painfully heaped up and compared in some external way than for the insight which through sympathy divines the real motives and characters of men and women. The listeners to Tertium Quid, no doubt, thought he was clever. But they knew he bored them. So many praise the laborious compiler of mere facts, but they do not read him. Interest belongs to the historian who cares for those of whom he writes. End of chapter five.